Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. This episode featured our The Good Book Club discussion of The Unfolding of Language, an evolutionary tour of mankind's greatest invention by Guy Ducher. This groundbreaking book looks at the origin of language in a new and innovative way. Perhaps the most remarkable conclusion made is that even the most elaborate languages are the product not of a single brilliant inventor, but of thousands of ordinary people creating, almost by accident, one of the most profound and beautiful structures humanity has created. This of the Good Book Club meeting was originally held on Sunday, August 13th at 11 a.m. Mountain Time. Welcome everybody to The Good Book Club. It is our August Sunday, the 13th edition. It's 11 a.m. and we are extremely excited to be here with all of our book club members for a wonderful discussion today. We have a couple um, announcements. Before we get to those, we're going to have um, Jean, one of our book club members, read our The Good Book Club mission statement. The Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are an introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experience experiences relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering new religious ideologies spirituality and life philosophies oh perfect thanks gene i love to hear that read and i always joke maybe someday like a boy scout oath i'll make everybody raise their hand and say i don't think i will (laughs) all right biggest announcement yet unbelievably we are on the third year well actually entering the fourth year of the good book club it is our happy third birthday on i think august 23rd i think is the actual day but absolutely amazing and please congratulate yourself because within our midst even today we have a lot of og members who have actually been with us for three years so to me it's incredible and an accomplishment and happy birthday good book club um we want to talk about just very briefly we had a couple fun field trips and um, we do this for those that are in the area when things just pop up um a lot of us went to the sunstone symposium which was really fun to connect you can see that picture there uh went out to a big uh lunch with Stephen pinecker there's sandra tanner right in the front um if you've never been to sunstone it's every end of july next year plan now is absolutely amazing um we were also able to go and support one of our book club members monique in a performance that she was doing um locally the scarlet pimpernel so there's a few of us there who attended that and that was really fun so the message is read and get out connect okay um we voted on our books the book list list is available on the facebook page and also under the featured tab and also i've emailed it out to everybody that talks to us through email Um, We have discussion leaders for each of our books. We have four months left that we need somebody to sign up for. To be a discussion leader, you can do it as simply as you want. You can be as complex as you want. You just have to read the book and kind of lead us through um, an experience with it. It can be as easy as saying, what y'all think? (laughs) And let us talk. Or you can put together slides or a presentation. So it's really fun and easy. And and we love it because it gives us a different flavor, a different personality with each discussion leader. Because frankly, if Landon and I were to do it every month, 
every month it would be boring because it would be the same. So we have November, um, an immense world, how animal senses reveal the hidden realms around us. We have February. Now this is a good one. Sex at dawn, how we mate, why we stray, and what it means for modern relationships. That's a good one. And we have May, the chaos machine, the inside story of how social media rewired our minds and our world. And we have July, the moral landscape, how science can determine human values. So if you're interested, throw it in the chat. If you can commit right, I want to commit you right now. <laughs> throw it in the chat um, if you'd like to do it or just message me personally, message me, find us on Facebook. Anyway, we'd love to get these last four slots filled up and then we're good for another year, which is really exciting. We've got a great list. It's going to be a good year. Um, let's talk about some actual upcoming events here on our calendar. Um, we have a bonus event in September. Um, those that can, we are going to meet down at the Mountain Meadows. We're going to be there Friday through Sunday. You could join us at any point on Saturday. Um, I believe the date Saturday. I'm going to clarify. We are going to walk the site with uh, Barbara Brown and Richard Turley, authors of Vengeance is Mine. So this is kind of in the planning stage, if you are interested in going down there and being a part of it, message me and we will include you in the planning stage because there's a lot we can do. And there's a lot of opportunities to tour different things, experience different things. We can go out to dinner. We're just going to kind of put it together. So if you want to come, message us and we'll get it all started. And that's going to be um, that, that second week in September. Um, other reading opportunities. I also helped John DeLynn read the, or run the Mormon Stories Book Club. And we finally have a date for Vengeance is Mine. And that's September 15th in the morning. This is going to be a live stream where you can jump on. You can ask questions in the comments section. And we're going to be talking to Barbara Brown. So that'll be really exciting. Vengeance is Mine. Um, another exciting event for people that are here in the area or people like Bruce who are going to fly in, Vintage Thrive. This means uh, post-Mormons of a certain age. That's what I'll say. You can decide yourself if you're vintage or not. And this is going to be September 16th. It's an all-day event on that Saturday. Um, it's going to be at a location, like a reception center kind of place in the Provo Mall. Natasha Helfer Parker, Anthony Miller, Backyard professor, tons of people are going to be there. It's just going to be really fun to connect. There's going to be a dance. I think Tom is DJing it. There's going to be a band. Um, it's going to be really fun, a fun day. And then there's an event the next day, which is um, a Thrive kind of gathering. Um, so find out more, go to the website, Thrive Beyond Religion, get your tickets. Um, I get to MC it. So it's going to be really fun. And that's in September also. And then very quickly, I'll just mention what our books for September are. We're going to talk about this at length um, at the end. Not at length. That makes it sound like I'm going to go on and on. That would never happen. <laughs> we will talk about this more at the end of the presentation. But our book for um, September is actually going to be a series of books. We're going to do a Mountain Meadows Massacre mashup. We want you to pick whichever of these books and read them and we're going to have a discussion. So we'll tell you more about that at the end. Okay, I think we're done with our announcements and now we'll move on to our main event. This is The Unfolding of Language by Guy Docher and Luann is our discussion leader. Take it away, Luann. Okay, hi. Um, good to see you all. This was definitely a book. Um, I wanted to start with uh, uh, recognizing the author who is Guy Deutscher, um, and he was born in Tel Aviv in 1969, and he's an Israeli linguist, no surprise there. 
He is an honorary, honorary research fellow at the University of Manchester and was a professor in the Department of Languages and Cultures of Ancient Mesopotamia at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. He received an undergraduate degree in mathematics and then went on to earn a PhD in linguistics um, at the same place, the University of Cambridge. After that, he undertook research in historical linguistics at St. John's College, Cambridge. He's been around, he has mastered many languages and he's a fascinating writer. Uh, he is also the father of Alma uh, Deutscher. And several years back, I would listen to uh, her videos. Uh, she is a child prodigy, uh, a composer and musician, beautiful on the piano and on the violin. Um, and that endeared me to Guy Deutscher so much more. Okay, that's it for, for the author. Um, so, um, we are going to go on to, um, uh, to thinking about the book. And I want to start with a survey because I kind of want to know where we are. So Bruce, if you could put in the first two survey questions, I would appreciate it. And um, hopefully everyone will, re will respond. We're having good response. We will do it probably for another 10 seconds or so. So far we have 18 of 25. I can't respond because I'm hosting, but I'm at two and a half, three. And what are the languages? Uh, Spanish and French and English. Mm -hmm. Spanish from my mission. French from six months study abroad in Paris. Great. The romance languages. Yep. And they're some of the comments about how they're all romance languages are very similar is true because they all sound like mispronounced Spanish to me. Okay. Okay. Uh, five more seconds. Okay. We're ending the poll and I will share the results. So the majority of us um, are one language, 55%. And there are 36% uh, have two languages and more, no, none at just three, but uh, more than just three languages, 9%. Uh, um, I hope that during the discussion, someone brings up, if you have more than three languages, we'd like to know what they are. And so thank you. And then on to the second survey question. And just a second. Uh, let's see. Brandy uh, says, shout out to French uh, uh, study abroad. Okay. We're going to 
do about another five seconds. Get your vote in if you want to do it. Okay, and I'm I'm a for the most part both. And all and, and sharing the results. Okay, uh, the majority haven't uh, read the book, um, and that's okay. Um, part of my preparation was making a PowerPoint that I was going to share that was pretty much a synopsis of the book. I practiced it and decided that it was way too boring. Deutscher does a better job than I do. Uh, but I am planning to post that on the uh, Facebook page uh, after uh, sometime today. And so you can get the review. But do feel free to participate. Um, I forgot how many, what percentage uh, was listening to the story of language? Do you have that, Bruce? Yeah, three per, uh, three people, 14%. 14%. Well, yeah, I'm in that group. I listen to the great courses, one on language, again, and it's very similar. Okay. John McMurder, okay. yeah. Uh-huh. Feel free to participate, whether you read or not, a language is a language is a language. Um, I'd like to start with some of the lofty quotes at the beginning of the book, um, because I think they're so beautiful. And um, so uh, Deutscher says, other inventions, the wheel, agriculture, and sliced bread may have tr transformed our material existence, but the advent of language is what made us human. He, uh, he quoted from the gram grammarians of the Port Royal Abbey near Versailles um, from 1660. They said, this marvelous invention of composing out of 25 or 30 sounds, that infinite variety of expressions, which while having in themselves no likeness to what is in our mind, allow us to disclose to others the whole secret and to make known to those who cannot penetrate it all that we imagine and all the various stirrings of our soul. I think that's so poetic and I love poetry. Um, he also said mankind, it, it, language is mankind's greatest invention, except of course it was never invented. The author explores the mysteri mysterious structure of language, what it is, what it does, and how cleverly it goes about doing it. Language is much more than the sum of its words. The structure of language is what can turn a pile of word bricks into a palace of expressions, a castle in the air. Um, the main dilemma I had when I uh, read this book, reading it, knowing I was going to present it, I think affected how I interpreted the book, but it was, you're pulled. Uh, you either... Um, get into the minutia of detail or you're pulled into the big thinking, the big ideas. And uh, I'm curious what, um, how you reacted to it. Were you pulled by the small details or were you pulled by the big ideas? Um, you use reactions if you want, Bruce. Go ahead. 
Well, yeah, I've read several books on this and from my ex-Mormon mind, I'm just going like, okay, everything is a simplistic, easy story. And once you start reading the details of many things, as we've read it in the past DNA, as we've read uh, the history of the Americas, and now language, it's not a simplistic story. You know, when, you know, Joseph Smith said reformed Egyptian and 600 BC, and, you know, coming forward and, and knowing now that we could, we can't hardly understand any of Middle English. And you know that that was going on in the Americas, if the narrative that was given by um, our common culture, the Mormon church is true, then yeah, it the simplistic, easy story, starting with the stories of Adam and Eve and the flood and stuff, they're nice little, you know, stories, but boy, is real life more complicated? And you know, my reason for being in the book club is I want to, I don't believe the narrative of how the world works that I was raised with. And so now I want to know how does the world work? And so, like I mentioned, we've gone through DNA, we've gone through free will, we've gone through um, the history of the Americas before 1492. And now language, um, um, you know, it, it's more complicated. It is. Um, thank you, Ann Landon. Yeah, I, I really, I really enjoyed this book. It was, it, it was technical, so it was, it was difficult to follow sometimes. You know, I don't know all my, I realized how poor I am at all my English usage, <laughs> dadivs, and all the different things they were. I'm like, I can't even remember what those are from school, but. To me, this was this was fascinating because uh, on on the podcast we did for Mormonish, uh, we we've just done a couple on languages that were about oral traditions versus literary traditions and how people write versus how they speak and how their mindset completely changes based on whether they're an oral society or a literate society. And so we've we've actually been looking at some of this and going, okay, you know, in the Book of Mormon we talk about you know, they were Hebrew speaking people, supposedly, who wrote this whole history and narrative. And then when we go back and we study what an oral society, how they link themselves more to the cosmos and not to history. Uh, one of the things that that we learned as we were talking is that literary people, people who write language, they write, they think historically, they think in a, they think linear in a line, but people who think People who speak speak an oral language, they they speak they think cos cosmologically. They look to the stars and to the heavens, and that's why almost every ancient civilization they're always lining things up with the solstices and planting seasons and different things because they're an oral society and they dance their rituals. They 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 don't do they don't think in the same way we do when we write so as i was reading this and seeing all the differences in the languages you know some of the things that i was considering was 
how much does a language change over a thousand years? You know, because uh, because we're studying that that Book of Mormon time frame. And it's amazing when I read the old English from a thousand years ago compared to the English today. And I could I could read the letters, but I didn't understand the words. And I'm going, wow, this really changes big over a thousand years. And yet there was still some words I identified. There were still things I could understand, you know, what they were. I could kind of get the gist of the message, even if I didn't understand it completely. And so as we've been doing this study of, of the Book of Mormon and the languages in there, you know, we get a feel for, well, if they were speaking Hebrew, they should still have Hebrew words that you could see. It, it, it would have changed quite a bit, though. And so for me, this, this studying of this language has really been useful to try to see how would this have changed in relation to the Book of Mormon peoples, it, you know, when we're looking at seeing, could this even have happened? We should see Hebrew. We should see these things. And so this book really helped me put that in perspective and look at those different oral versus literary thinking and skills. So to me, this this was pretty fascinating. Let's think uh, for, oh, go ahead. Um, is it Yvonne or Yvonne? How do you say it? I think you're uh, uh, muted. Can you click the unmute and then you're free to go? There we go. Perfect. Okay, Yvonne, we still can't hear you. Is your microphone on your computer turned on? Mm. Work. Yes, technical help is there. Thank you for helping. You can put the question or comment in the chat too. Yeah. I've got a comment while they're working on that. Okay, go for it, Bruce. The audio book that I listened to yesterday at double speed, because I've listened to it before, gave an example of the word silly. And silly used to mean um, blessed. And when in Shakespeare's time, you know, a silly person was a blessed person, but it has morphed into what we think of silly. And the the professor I was listening to, John McWhorter, was talking about, you have to like really understand and research Shakespeare's plays because what the face value of what we understand from just 500 years ago is significantly different. Yes. And and so I'm going like, okay. And and even today are examples of uh, I believe it was the book uh wicked. You know, something, you know, a kid using the term wicked as being good. And the wicked people, I mean, is that morphing to where wicked is going to be, you know, something really really good. So that was just my comment. Thank you. Okay, Yvonne, it's your turn. Oh, we still. Oh, no. Yeah. Put, put it in the if comment. You, if you put your uh, statement in the chat, hopefully someone will raise their hand and read it. Or try going out, coming back in, or reboot. Yeah. And sometimes that works. Yeah, rebooting sometimes helps. And while you're working on that, we'll listen to Rebecca. 
I just wonder if anybody remembers the series a long, long time ago called The Story of English. It was on PBS and it was a nine part series about exactly this. Where does language come from? And I watched that when I was much, much younger. I watched it with my mom and it just had such an impact just to start figuring out, you know, the origins of things, the complexity of everything. And I always joke how I was always a critical thinker, but the thing it made me realize is what's up with the Tower of Babel? I don't know if that could be real. I mean, even just going through that series, it made me arrive at that, you know, in my brain when I was much younger, that there's way more to it. It can't be that simplistic because in my family, I was taught, of course, that the Tower of Babel was absolutely correct. There was one language and then it was, you know, divinely split. So I think it's it's so valuable to study, you know, all of these different areas because that that series, I think that series probably stands up today. It's called The Story of English, even though it's decades old and it just, it took you through everything. So you really started to understand why we speak the way we do, you know, where it came from, what it all means. So I'm really excited about this discussion. I, I think it's going to mean a lot to everybody. So thanks, Luann. Thank you. Um, let's think a moment about when uh, humanity started to speak. Uh, the author says, no one knows. Archaeology can't tell us. Um, uh, many of the developments of society cannot tell us because um, uh, complex, uh, small societies have complex language. So, uh, and that ties in somehow, but I can't remember how. Uh, but anyway, uh, one thing I was wondering, having listened to your podcast with uh, John Lundwall, is, okay, if archaeology showed us uh, paintings of God, we would know there was language. Uh, does anyone have any comment about that? Uh, pros or cons, that's what I'm thinking is, God had to have come after language. Any other visualizations of what it was before people spoke or when they began to speak? Bruce? Well, it just reminds me of um, Sapiens, uh, his, his description of why religion developed. I have a fairly negative feeling towards religion being a post-Mormon, a gay post-Mormon, but I understand how that seems to have served a really good function and stuff. So again, that much broader understanding, you know, and I'm old, I've got maybe a quarter of my life left, how I'm going to uh, do it. Let's see. I've just got a quick housekeeping. Yvonne, you're in on two instances and and stuff. So um, one of them is muted. One of them's not. We still can't hear you. So keep working on that. And that's my question. That's my comment. Probably as she left and came back and the left part stayed. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay, Landon, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to say uh, to to your question. Obviously, it there, there are certain things that humans develop through communication. So you know, the idea of God you can't have without oral communication, and and uh, even even when we see tools being made, we see the technologies being shared, which means they're communicating somehow, whether that's oral communication or they're showing them, they're somehow communicating. So I think we can get some idea 
of when humans started to communicate, you know, based on that we start seeing that. But yeah, I agree. How, how do you determine when people started talking, uh, you know, whether it was 70,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago? There's going to be no record of that, but the only way we can find out is when we start seeing art or tools or something where there, where you would have to share knowledge in order to come up with the concept that can give us a clue as to when they were speaking. But that would be, to me, the limit of what we'd know. Okay, fascinating. Um, Did you have a comment? Did you have a comment? Who has a comment? Did Deborah have her hand up? Um, Got something I think she's still working. Um, Deborah, do you? Uh, yeah, oh, I, Deborah, I, yes, I, Deborah, where are you? Thank you. I I did have a comment, but uh, Landon pretty Hi. much answered the question. Um, the, you know, a lot of animals have a lot of animals communicate, but they don't necessarily have language. They can say, "Oh, you know." There's this stick, you know, but you can't say, oh, there's God. No, God is God is displaced. God is somewhere else. And so that requires language to talk about God. Anyway, yeah, so that was it. Uh, one has to have language. Thank you, Deborah. And that brought up the point. One has to have language to talk about something that is not right in front of you. Um, something from yesterday, something over the mountain. Uh, without language, there's no way to communicate it. I guess sign language, but who knows if sign language came first. Um, so Noam Chomsky uh, had the theory that uh, language is innate in our DNA and that we are predisposed to think, uh, to, to speak. Um, and there has been debate about that. I'm wondering if anyone has some thoughts about whether you believe it is part of our DNA and whether uh, we're born headed towards speaking. And Landon, thank you. Yeah, I would say it has to be in our DNA because we're the only animal that speaks uh no other animal speaks so it must come through through dna that we're able to make the sounds and learn to speak so i would say we're predisposed through our dna to speak um i i think one of the questions was whether we are predisposed to speak the same language and i i had trouble with that one believing that we were predisposed to speak the same language uh because obviously we don't all speak the same language and language changes even even if you're speaking the same language it it changes dialects and everything change over time so that to me led me to think that we weren't predisposed to speak the same language but that it is in our dna to speak thank you uh melissa so I, I actually do sign language. Um, I went to college and learned it in college, and then I taught for a little bit um, while I was working. And children actually learn hand, like I was teaching baby sign language because children were able to communicate at five, six, seven months old with sign language a lot better than they could with speaking. They were able to get their point across. So, you know, as a little kid, when they're standing in front of the fridge going, eh, 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 you know, they can't communicate that way. But if you can teach them milk or water, 
um, you know, they they actually do communicate sooner with hand gestures than they do with speaking. So just throwing that out there. Likely it began with hand gestures. Um, uh, Jeffrey. Yeah, I think the the thing that's interesting about the the question of whether it's innate is why you see such a wide range, though, of of actual languages like, you know, click languages and Africa, for example, are completely different. And so, you know, it's probably, I think some of the straight Chomskyan approach is, is hard to accept just based on seeing the wide variation. But that said, you know, maybe it's somewhere in the middle, which I think is often the, you know, often in these arguments, people go to either side, this binary, which I thought was always a problem in the church. It's like either one side or another, and you end up in the middle. And then, and, and one other comment, just back on the other topic, uh, I've, uh, one of the languages, uh, I, I speak both Japanese and Chinese, uh, I served my mission in Japan, and you have religions in Japan, for example, that venerate characters, not in terms of communicating any particular, I mean, there is a meaning behind it, but, uh, you know, you're venerating the character itself, and it's the same ancient runes in Scandinavia was about venerating the language. And I was struck on that podcast with John Lenwald talking about the Axis Mundi, Mundi, the, you know, dancing around religion and potentially celebrating the characters, not in terms of communicating something, but just in having some mystical power. And I think that that's a, quite a, a shift in the modern world, which essentially demonstrates something like the Book of Mormon could not have been written at the time that it said that it was just given the the big shift around the way that we use language thank you uh deborah hi okay so i'm living with this little kid who is <laughs> as we speak learning to talk okay so um we don't have to teach him to talk he just he just still he as he learns to form the sounds, he forms them. You know, he wants to communicate. And um, and what was it Melissa was saying about sign language? I had a concern because I'd heard about that, about babies using sign language to indicate what they want. And I was like, oh, but then they won't want to talk. The rumor that I hear is, oh, no, babies learn to talk. Babies want to talk but the sign language just helps them to communicate before they can talk. So that's it. Oh, he's saying hi. Hi. <laughs> he's such a cutie. What is his name? His name is Bintang. That is Malay for star. Bintang. Okay. Um, and uh, why, why, uh, what's the story behind choosing that name? Um, well, so he is, half American and half um, Malaysian, actually Sulaco um, from one of the tribes in Borneo. And so his his name is, his first name is Bintang and his middle name is Avery, which is, uh, what, what what's the meaning of Avery? It's, a, it's, it's, it's yeah. a, a forest king. A forest, a forest king. That's like a Gaelic, right? Yeah, Gaelic for so so um his first name is Malay for star. His middle name is Gaelic for forest king. 
So this kid's going to be powerful. <laughs> There's no doubt about him. Um, <laughs> and once he starts talking, happen. you're never going to be able to have a quiet moment in your life. <laughs> That's for sure. That's a family trait anyway. One, one argument that Chomsky, Chomsky used is that when children are learning language, they're learning it through our speech. And our speech is a lot different than the written language. Uh, it's short words. Uh, they say most conversations have just a handful of words. And uh, it's choppy. It's not always grammatically correct. And yet children seem to learn the language correctly. He, Chomsky argues far beyond what they've heard. Uh, does anyone have any thoughts about that? Uh, I have something and then and then I'll call on Bruce. Um, my uh, niece's daughter, you know how children are fussy until they crawl. They want to get moving and they're just, you have to spend more time with them. At least that's a vague memory I have. Uh, but her da a daughter crawled and was still just this I've got to do more, got to do more type attitude that was kind of fussy and needing attention. And then when she learned to speak, uh, she relaxed. And uh, she was little, just barely making words. And they were driving. They live in uh, upper New York. And it was snowing. And she said, snow is perfect. And, uh, you know, where does that come from? Bruce, your turn. Oh, I just... You know, as I as I'm thinking of how language changes, listening to the audiobook that I was yesterday going through, and he gave the examples very similar to what you just spoke about. They recorded a bunch of college students talking and played it back to them, and they were appalled how short and almost inarticulate they sounded while talking just casually with each other. It wasn't the fine writing prose you know you would think an educated person would have but then i also thought in mormon culture we have we are developing our own language i know in my mission culture i went to chile in the late 70s and i i'm not sure that the whole world maybe i'm wrong but the term trunky i think is used within mormon culture a lot I'm not sure that that's a term that would be readily recognized by the the world out there because you know nobody has this you know time frame when you're getting ready to pack your bags and leave because your it your time as a missionary is over and then we had in our mission our own kind of spanglish uh slang that um um, I know in, in Spanish, the word chueco is bent or bow-legged, but in our mission, the term chueco was for a missionary who didn't follow the rules. And that was just like every other conversation as a missionary, we would use that. And my Reddit handle is gringo chueco. And I have had people ask me, if I went to Chile, because I use the 
term gringo chueco. And I'm, I'm not sure how, how, you know, prevalent that is, but it, it seems to me, you know, in, in the Mormon culture that we are developing our own languages. I mean, we we're developing our own form of speaking that conference voice, the relief society voice, you know, the, the voice that's, that's, given over the pulpit at general conference, that way they talk, that's kind of creepy, or the way women talk in that release society voice that's not necessarily how they talk normally. So I just see the little microcosm of the Mormon culture as developing some of these things. Thanks. Uh, it gives you a lot to think about. Uh, Jeffrey, your turn. Yeah, I, one of the things I think is interesting is our interpretive interpretation of language is not always the same with how it was originally uh, communicated in, in writing. So, for example, in uh, King James English, thee and thou is considered familiar, and you and ye is considered formal. And I remember as a child, you know, you're, 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 it, it was always striking when uh, you know investigators came to church and they didn't use thee and thou in the prayers. And my parents and teachers would say things like, oh, you know, you're not showing proper respect for God because you're using uh, you and, and ye as opposed to thee and thou. And it, it's actually the exact reverse. And as a consequence of the, the language getting away from the original intent of King James. And, and, and another example uh, from Japan, when uh, Xavier, who was a Jesuit priest, uh, who was attempting to convert the Japanese, there were a lot of initial Jesuit priests in, in Japan, uh, they were quite successful initially. Uh, and and the, the word for God in Japanese is kami or kami-sama. And they, they discovered, however, after people were being converted, that they were just putting Jesus as another god, because in Japanese, the notion of kami, there's gods of rocks and gods of trees and gods of the sun and, and the water. And so the, the Jesuit priests then start telling the Christians not to use the Japanese word for kami, but to use the Latin word deus, because they wanted to distinguish the monotheistic overlord. So it's just, I, I find it very interesting how you can get completely different interpretations just based on the language you use. And the final one is, if you look at the original Hebrew in the Old Testament, some of the Hebrew is written very colloquially and not very well, and some of it's written very well, very educated. But that's all been lost because we read it in English, which the King James translators just completely smoothed over those differences. Anyway, it's just the, it's an interesting point how your interpretation can be completely different than how things were originally intended when it was written down or spoken. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, question, Jeffrey. Um, if I remember right, were you the one that mentioned Sepher Wartel? Yes. Yeah, the Sapir Whorf hypothesis. Okay, say it right again. I said it wrong. Yeah, Sapir Whorf. Sapir Whorf, that's right. Uh, hypothesis. Could you tell us what that is? Yeah, that th this was a, a linguistic hypothesis from uh, quite a while ago. Two academics argued that the language was uh, related to your environment and, and that would affect the way you think. So the, the, the iconic example is snow. Like they would say the Inuits have 
I don't know what, what the number is, but more than three ways to talk about snow. Whereas for us, the, there's just one way and it's been very controversial. I think it's mostly been debunked, actually. If you listen to John McWhorter, he, he talks about that. But 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 that said, uh, I think there is something about how the way we use language and the way that it impacts the way you think. I'm one of those that speaks more than three languages, and uh, it's heavily impacted the way that I think. In fact, when I learned a second language uh, growing up, that's actually when I started realizing that the Mormon worldview that I was taught was just very small. Because you start realizing that, you know, so for example, in Japan, they teach you as a missionary to start with, uh, you know, do you believe, uh, do you believe in God? And, you know, have you ever heard of Jesus Christ? And what they don't tell you originally, you understand this as, you, as you're there, is that that question is not very relevant to the Japanese because they just, they, they, this whole notion of having one way of thinking, one religion, it's just not even part of their way of thinking or talking. And, you know, that was quite jolting at first as as somebody who had not been originally exposed to that. But I think this goes back to the Superior Wharf, you know, the, it's really the extent to which your environment and language is actually changing the way you think. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, and we might get back to that later. Uh, what, that, what you said reminded me of the book 1984 and how they were actually working on the language to try and make it harder for people to be rebels and uh, individualistic. Um, uh, Yvonne, your turn. You're, you're can you hear me? Now we yes. can. Yes. <laughs> this is my first time. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Hearing this stuff out. But um, I just wanted to put a plug in for the book because I was one of the ones that read it and I really liked it. I, I thought it was really fascinating. And um, the, the thing, the premise that I think he has that is sort of the undercurrent of the whole thing that he doesn't ever really articulate. He calls it um, the unfolding of language and evolutionary theory is that he's, he, he doesn't ever say it. I'm waiting for him to say it through the whole book, but the linguist, the linguists of the earlier, you know, 17, 18, they, they thought that the farther we went, we went back like ancient Greek, ancient Latin, Sanskrit, that language is more and more complicated and complex in structure, in grammar. And that was because they were trying to find the pure Adamic language because they had that religious mindset, as other people have mentioned, the worldview that we all were raised as Mormons, that, you know, God gave language in this pure Adamic form to Adam. And even we all spoke the same language. And and these ancient languages be, are more beautiful, more complex, kind of more expressive. So how did that happen? And and now, you know, the first part of the book, he's talking about how are from the ancient Greek and Latin, for example, in Greek, there's 600, over 600 different forms of a verb. A verb has endings in the front of the beginning to tell um, tense and, and plural and you know, I can't remember them all, but they're there. It's very complicated and it has, you know, degenerated. So how do we account for that? And he's uh, all through the book. He's he doesn't mention that, but he's a linguist that's trying to say, no, it didn't have to be, you know, dispensed from God in this pure form. But that's what the original linguists believed. 
and he's trying to make a case for how it evolved um, by looking at, anyway, I thought it was fascinating, the book, but um, um, anyway, and there's lots of, my favorite part, if you read one part, read the part where he talks about how um, metaphor, our metaphors in language has been a way that it's built up. And I think it's, well, starting on page like 100 or to 100 and something there, chapter that four. chapter is really fascinating. It is fascinating. It was my favorite chapter of the whole thing. And uh, you were, you articulate some of those concepts far better than I could. I worked so hard on this book because it wasn't natural to articulate um, the detail. Um, that drove me crazy. Bipolar. Um, okay, so I have a question. Landon, I'll try to remember my question while you're sharing. I was just going to say, I, I agree with Yvonne, I, you know, the, the whole time in the book, he's sitting there saying, oh, language, uh, the older it's, the more perfect it is. And so that uh, it, it somehow had to have come perfectly somehow. How do you create it perfectly? And then it degenerates over time. And he covered that for several chapters. And I kept going, that doesn't make any sense. How did, how could it just become perfect and then degenerate? Someone had to create it then to make it perfect. And that that metaphor chapter was really was really awesome where he talked about uh, that a metaphor that we start using words that maybe we picture in our mind as that word. And then as we we start using that word and then that word becomes the word that we use for it, even though it has nothing to do with that word, the metaphor we've associated to it now makes it become that word. And I was just going, wow, that's that's pretty interesting that that that. I was just like, wow, that that's awesome. Language changes. It it doesn't come into being. It just seems to keep changing. So. Yes. Yes. Uh, he covered that very well. Um, I think and, your uh, was saying something, but we couldn't. couldn't sorry. <laughs> okay. I was just saying the concrete to the abstract, right? Like body parts yeah. um, making the, that we talk about them. Can I read just one part of that to? Of the, of the to make it to kind of whet your appetite. So, and in fact, it's the food analogy. How how eating is such the concrete thing of eating transforms into um, our metaphors that we use to describe stuff. And he starts out by some political chapter, and he says, suppose, for instance, during an election campaign, you read that the the new election promises are more like a souffle of promises, and that phrase is clearly metaphorical since. Uh, a standard a souffle is not something that you would you would apply to promises but he talked these are all the different food metaphors that we encounter in our in our language that we don't even think about people speak of troubles brewing anger simmering resentment boiling can you see they're all they're all food cooking metaphors fanaticism fermenting employees seething People chew over new suggestions and digest new information. The masses swallow whatever the newspapers feed them. Students regurgita regurgitate facts. Children gobble up the latest Harry Potter books. Fans devour reports of their... Anyway, isn't that amazing? How they're, it it's is. all that, that concrete of, of eating or cooking... And we don't even think about it, but that's how we communicate is that's all metaphors. We have sweet dreams, bitter hatreds, sour relations, 
half-baked ideas, and all this can give us some food for thought. Food to ideas, <laughs> fascinating. Uh, for just a moment, the thought of uh, concrete to abstract, um, how, uh, I mean, for me, I had not thought about these things and it was just like language was taking on a form that I was always there that I had never visualized before. Because how would we say an abstract concept without using concrete words? Where would you begin? I mean, that was just an eye-opening thought for me. Um, and Bruce, it's your turn. I just what Yvonne was was mentioning when she said, you know, uh, souffle, I'm going like, okay, how many kids today have seen their moms make a souffle? I remember it. I'm not so sure that modern kids that have grown up on fast food, I, I don't know if any of you have seen the, it's sometimes on YouTube or Instagram where an adult will put a rotary dial phone in front of some kids and ask them to dial a number. And they have no idea that, you know, they have to take it all the way around to let it, you know, return. And then there was a, a movie, I can't remember what it was, um, but it was a dumb blonde kind of person. And there was a rotary dial phone in the hotel and she just started trying to punch the numbers. And so as things change, you know, souffle or cooking terms that communicated things to everybody for us may have real meaning for a 14 year old now may have no meaning and it may get lost and morph and stuff like that. So especially as, as you know, TV dinners, fast food, you know, maybe less or different home cooking. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. I can see our language just changing. And then all of uh, modern technology, computers and programming terms and, and stuff like that, that didn't exist. So th just some of my thoughts on it. Thanks for sharing. Uh, reminds me that right after the food was the up is down and how that as a metaphor has spread to the economy. The economy is up, uh, the stock market is up. Is it up? Is it really a level? Did it change level or did something else change? Uh, my mood is down. Did my mood really go down lower or is that the way we have described something that is abstract? Um, and uh, for example, the dial phone, there's also the thermostat. Uh, if you're a little bit hot right now, you go to the thermostat and there's a little lever you push down. Well, is the heat going down or is it just going colder? Um, and so it, it, it goes from language, concrete to abstract in language, and we use the same things in our physical world. Um, uh, Rebecca. Yeah, I just had one comment kind of to piggyback on Bruce and what you said, um, common usage and how that morphs language. I have this argument all the time with RFM. 
So he says foyer is correct. At church, he would say, meet me in the foyer. And I say, that's ridiculous. Everyone says foyer. It may not be correct, but it's what everybody understands. And they're going to look at you as a different kind of person if you say, meet me in the foyer. So, you know, it's interesting to, to, to kind of note how common usage then becomes what the language is, even if it wasn't correct. And that kind of speaks to what Bruce was saying. We said it this way then, but we say it this way now, mom. And and I and I say that because my kids all the time I find myself sliding into their language when they were teenagers. Like I used to say, "Oh, that's very suspect." Now I say, "That's kind of sus." I know I'm really cool, but you know the language just kind of morphs, and the new words become the actual words. So I don't know if anyone has any thoughts on that—a common usage. But yeah, think about that next time you go to the foyer. <laughs> uh, Jeffrey. But I, I think also subcultures retain certain interpretations that may not be generalized. So, you know, we're talking about it temporally here. Over time, things change. But I think sometimes you could have subcultures. Yeah, you know, one, one example I learned when I was studying German is uh, typically if, you know, if, if you feel hot, like your temperature hot, you, yeah, you don't use the construction, I am hot. You, you use the construction that uh, the, the, the data version of me is hot. And the reason why you do that is if you say directly, I am hot, it says you're aroused, like you're sexually aroused. And that's uh, it's a common problem for people learning the language. The same is true, I find, between people who have never been raised, I don't know if other people have this experience, but people who have never been raised in a high demand religion who then look from the outside, they don't really understand the communication. So, you know, so for example, when I, uh, if, if somebody wants to coerce you to do something in the church, they use a lot of what, what would sound to non-members, just very innocuous, not coercive uh, phrases. You know, so if, if I might disagree, the leader would say to me, have you really prayed about this, Brother Bond? As opposed to saying, you know, you're wrong. And you know, as a lifelong member, that you have been corrected. And I find this interesting because this becomes a point of deniability sometimes when when people inside the church talk to people outside the church, because they'll they'll say, oh, we're not telling them to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, I had this experience in San Francisco in the Prop 22. This is before Prop 8. And Prop 22 was not technically supported by the church. This was the, the first... Uh, marriage referendum referendum thing and the the number of passive phrases and just very indirect but it was clear what the message was to me was extraordinary i mean that was that was a, a particularly strong experience and i think if you're not in the subculture you actually don't understand what people are talking about and you completely misinterpret what what is going on in the communication and i think that's uh and even today i mean in some of the comments people are talking about what i call general authority ease I mean, that triggers me a little bit every time I think when I hear it, because it's just because uh, it, it it has a lot of baggage associated with it. And so, the, you know, this is a piece of that superior war hypothesis that may be correct. Mm -hmm. uh, the word church broke is a metaphor, and it's not a very pretty one. Um, OK, Bruce. Well, I was just going back through the uh, chat and Brandy brought up the terms fetch, frick, freak, I mean, Mormon swearing. Um, 
you know, I'm not sure how many other places if, you know, you hit your finger with a hammer and you said fetch, people wouldn't look at you and go like, what the heck? But I think Mormon swearing um, is kind of that like subculture thing. And, um, and I then, don't think they'd say what the heck, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, another thing came to mind and I'm not sure if, if it's local, but uh, I don't recall having the concept of fry sauce until I was in Utah. And I think that is something that may have developed as a subculture Thanks. That's my comment. Thank you. Um, going back over some of the things we've said, it's, it's uh, triggered certain thoughts about the book. And one is, uh, I'm sure you all saw the uh, Proto-Indo-European tree um, that uh, it has been proved that all of these languages, Sanskrit is one of them, uh, go back to a common ancestor language that no longer exists. And uh, that uh, from that we get uh, the people, the languages of the people who live in Iran, India, um, the, and all of Europe. And uh, the tree branches out to so many different languages. Uh, from the book, do you remember what the two factors are that make a language change? And we'll listen to Landon and then thank you for sharing the tree. Um, uh, and then we'll go to uh, Landon and then we'll see if we can answer the question. Landon. I think I raised my hand too quick when you asked the question because I don't know the answer to that. I just wanted to say I, this tree was awesome. When I saw this tree in the book, I was following it and I'm like, I. I don't know how many of these trees there are for the forest of languages, but I'd love to see the one for Africa, for the Chinese languages, for the American languages, because they certainly all have to have, you know, they, they don't all go back to Indo-European. So I don't know if anyone's seen any of these for other languages, but I'd, I'd love to see all these different trees and see how they tie together. Cause at some point we know all the languages went back to Africa. Uh, but I'd, I'd love to see that whole, whole way it went back that that would be awesome the story of language covered the different language families and it was fascinating so uh the two ways that uh, a language will change into a different language anyone know give you five seconds and then i'll answer it <laughs> okay people have to migrate and because they migrate, they're in a separate group, so they're not interacting and sharing the language, so it becomes unique. And it changes because uh, language is always changing. Uh, we do that. Uh, there are three forces that work on language that cause change. Uh, the first is economy, which is another word for laziness. We want to pronounce things easier. Um, our tongues get lazy. Uh, and then words break off, they become shorter. And uh, uh, lots of changes take place. This would be called the, the erosion, which is another beautiful uh, metaphor from uh, geology. Uh, it's how our language erodes. 
the second thing is, um, okay, it's, uh, is expressiveness. Things erode, they get very, very small, um, such as uh, there was a long phrase meaning uh, not at all. And uh, anyway, it, it was like three words and it was pushed down to not, which doesn't mean the emphatic thing anymore. It means no, just simple no. But we get emphatic. We want to say things in a new way. It catches on. It gets repeated a jillion times. And when it gets to a jillion and one times, people are tired of it. They're thinking about it differently. It loses its meaning. And uh, it becomes bleached. And it becomes a, a grammatical word. And an example of that is, are you going to the store? Uh, I'm going to stay home. Uh, gonna. Uh, which would be considered bad English, is uh, doesn't mean the same thing as going somewhere. Gonna is becoming like shall or will. It's a future marker. So expressiveness brings things into the language and then changes them around and maybe even makes them uh, mean something different. And then the third thing is uh, analysis, analytical, uh, I can't remember. Analogy, that's the word. Um, we want to find patterns. There is uh, too much, too much, too much. For example, uh, someone who's learned a lot of the Proto-European languages uh, tried to learn Basque and gave up because there were just too many new words. Basque is a language all of its own. It, they are not related like they are through the Germanic languages or the Romance languages or the uh, Celtic languages. And it was just too much detail. So the key to intelligence, uh, to being able to think, is to be able to forget differences and put things in categories. And that's how uh, we learn, uh, how we deal with uh, approaching a language. So the three things are uh, economy, uh, expressiveness, and analogy. And they work together to destroy and to build up our language. Uh, go ahead, Bruce. Yeah, I just had an example. This was in the audiobook, uh, John McWhorter. Um, <clears throat> he gave the example of library and library. You know, little kids often go to the library. And he was saying that that possibly it will morph into library because mm -hmm. that extra R February is is hard too. And I've seen some other examples of uh, the term buck naked morphing into butt naked because you think, oh, but you're naked and stuff. And then uh, champing at the bit for a horse is is morphing into chomping at the because that chomping it makes sense but champing is kind of i guess the equestrian term that is correct so yeah that, that whole morphing um yeah, thing and you know and at what point in the in the comments when will ponderize become part of standard english who knows I use it all the time. Joe. 
Uh, let's see. Can you hear me now? I can. Oh, okay. So on a side note, we're talking about efficiency, and I wonder how much this plays into it. I was reading a book about uh, our personal biases and how our brain works, and we have this, like, quick reactionary thing where our brain works very efficiently, but it's not very accurate. And then we have a part of our brain where it has to slow down and has to figure things out, and then it becomes more accurate. Um, but like like you're saying, the language morphs as we become efficient, and a, our brain wants to be efficient but inaccurate. And I was just thinking about the efficiency of it and how the languages morph on efficiency and how we naturally try to be more efficient but inaccurate. And... I don't know if that's making much sense, but I, it was no, kind it of makes, an interesting crossover. It makes complete sense. Um, I, I, I read part of that book. I think it's uh, uh, Slow Thinking and Fast Thinking. That I forget. What was the title of the book? Do you remember? No, you're right on it. It's, it's the Fast Thinking. And, yeah, exactly. And And the other thing I wanted to point out was that I was watching a show on Netflix about the Homo Naledi. And they live. I'm sorry, didn't you get the homo the what? Homo naledi. So they're a branch of a homo species that died out. Uh, and they found a cave in 2015, and they found like burial and some sort of art, very formal, uh, very uh, basic artistic stuff. And it's uh, on Netflix. It's called Cave of Unknown Cave of Bones or something. But they talked a little bit about how they had to have communicated because they had art. And this was 300,000 years ago. Um, but it was very primitive art and very primitive communication. So if we go with the genetic concept, the Fox gene that we learned to speak using that idea, it's interesting that maybe this Homo Naledi had maybe a piece of that. But anyway, really, really interesting stuff you guys are talking about. Fascinating. Uh, Deborah. Yeah, yeah. So that's really interesting what Joe was saying. Um, makes me wonder if if maybe language came in, to, you know, popped into being instead of in one spot, maybe several spots, you know. Um, but yeah, but the other thing about slow thinking and fast thinking that has something to do with mental heuristics. And it's it's mental shortcuts to be able to come to a quick um, because in a survival situation you have to be able to come to a quick judgment, and um, yeah, so the fast thinking does sacrifice accuracy, and um, accuracy is is wasn't so important, uh, you know, ten hundred thousand years ago, but accuracy is kind of needed now so we need to know when we're using a heuristic and and when we need to be more analytical and actually think something all the way through to its conclusion so yes that 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 triggers something um that the prehistoric people were actually some of the most intelligent i think this is from sapiens because they had to survive in the world. They had to know where a certain herb bloomed in a certain time of the year. Uh, they had to know uh, how to avoid lions when you're 
uh, hunting for meat and uh, the details, the number of details was just amazing. And uh, it was the very intelligent who survived because those things were things that kept them alive. Where in our society, uh, society as a whole knows so much, but we can't know it all, we have to specialize. And uh, so we are intelligent in a different way. Um, anyway, um, I think I've gone blank. So thank heavens for Jeffrey. You know, I, I was just going to make the point that one of the big advantages our species has is writing. So the fact that you can write things down, you you don't lose that knowledge every time people die. So you know that that's that's one of the, that one well, that's one of the things that differentiates us in the you know modern modern humans versus prehistoric is that you have the benefit of going back and looking at at previous uh, knowledge and build on that. And so that we can collaborate across a large number of people. Um, yeah, the uh, written language uh, is um, has changed. A changed it's changed the pace of our uh, language change because uh, it was so easy to run words together when you're not reading them, but when you read them, then you see the space between words. So. The written language is keeping a lot of the language together. Um, uh, the story of language said that if if language has only existed 24 hours, then the written language started at, and he was specific, 11.08 p.m. So it's affected only a small, I, I mean, it's the its impact has been huge. And it's changes completely as a people, but its impact is short. Uh, most of society lived and died without the written language. Uh, Landon. Yeah, we, we discussed this in that Dr. Lundwall episode. It was really interesting because he talked about how the medium is the message. Um, the way that we share communication really changes how we communicate. And so... He pointed out how it used to be that you'd go to the well and that's where everything sprung up around the well because you'd go get the water and then the, you know, kind of the water cooler talk. But then when you got the printing press, language and how we communicate completely changed again because of the medium that was being used with written language as opposed to oral language. And now we see in the computer age with texting and everything, the language is changing completely again. So our language changes based on the medium that we use to transmit. And that was something I had never really considered before, but you can certainly see it uh, just changing in our uh, in the world today, uh, how, how much it's changed just texting. I mean, look how much you can say with just an emoji now. Yes, yes. Good points. Uh, Deborah. Piggybacking off of that, you know, we're talking. I'm talking to my son. He'll say, LOL. You know, <laughs> he wouldn't have said that 20 years ago. But yeah, just using texting, um, texting language, just talking. Um, but what I was thinking was um, written language. So so my dad was a grammar snob. I I was a grammar snob. I am one of five girls who are all grammar snobs. 
And I used to be one of those people that corrected people's grammar. <laughs> I admit it. It's terrible. Anyway, um, I just I just realized sitting here that before written language, nobody corrected anybody's grammar. Uh, anyway. Fascinating thought. Um, in the story of language, he has a chapter on something about the blackboard. And it's that grammar is not bad. Grammar mistakes aren't bad. Um, saying me and him did it is not bad. That's the way it is in most languages. And uh, it's touched on lightly in um, the unfolding of language in that language is changing. And that implies go with where it changes. Um, so it freed me because I always thought it was a sin because it was drilled into me so hard to say me uh, at the beginning as a subject. And it's not. Language is changing. And so I'm not going to correct people's grammar anymore. Um, something gained from the book. Rebecca. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Like I said about the foyer and the foyer, language is changing. And I think we have to be prepared for that. Also, um, forms of language that were not legitimate before are now like the emoji, like what Landon mentioned. So I thought it was very interesting. Um, I did an episode on Mormon book reviews about um, it's a website called the Mormon Book of Mormon Art um, Catalog. So they've collected Book of Mormon Art um, it's a faithful website, but it's very interesting from everywhere, all genres, and it's very well cataloged, very well indexed. One of the depictions of Lehi's vision, so they have artwork from everywhere. They have etchings and stonework and paintings and watercolors. One of the depictions is Lehi's vision in emoji, completely created by emoji, and you can look it up. And to them, that's a legitimate art form that they have put in this Book of Mormon art catalog to depict that vision, but it's completely in emoji. So I think the lesson is we got to get ready. <laughs> Times are a changing. Mm -hmm. Let's go on to some big questions. Uh, the way that the uh, book ends in the epilogue, uh, Deutscher goes in kind of a more speculation and thinking, and he he briefly mentioned somebody. Uh, I'm forgetting the name right now. Um, August August Schlechter or somebody like that Schlechter, um, who had the theory that language was a living organism that it was born, it got strong and uh, it had its powerful years and then it started to decay and it died. Um, and so that was his prediction about language. And of course, people kind of laughed at him and it didn't make a lot of sense. But what, uh, uh, Landon, can you pull up the epilogue? Um, what um, Deutscher says about it is in today's language, he said that the small, uh, societies of 100 people or something, tribal people, have the really complex language. And uh, uh, that we, in our world, who have the printed word, we have the mass media, we do not spend our time talking to a small group, but spend a lot of our time talking to strangers, and we're really open to all of the world, um, that we, uh, thank you, because I'm forgetting my thought, um, that this can 
lead to our language simplifying? And he said, maybe the impact on this evolution is really small, but if it is an impact and it has some effect, maybe it could change. Um, can we go back just a little bit? Uh, maybe it could change the course of language. I don't know that he's predicting the death of language, um, but uh, he says, seen from this angle, uh, I listened to it on the net, to the pronunciation. Uh, Schleicher's fantastical theory of living language when stripped of the coding of, of romantic prejudice may still turn out to be not so fantastical after all. Uh, our language is maybe changing in a way that is no longer circular. And I am curious if you, um, if people have any thoughts about that. Do you have any conjectures about the future of language? Uh, Bruce? Well, um, I went uh, on study abroad in 1979 to Paris for six months. And I recall the kind of governing body of French was having conniption fits about uh, some terms from English coming into French that they didn't want French people using. They wanted their own. And it was uh, footing, F-O-O-T-I-N-G was jogging. So it wasn't even jogging the English term, but they used the term foot and le weekend weekend coming in to French. They were trying to get people to stop using that. And I keep wondering with modern communications and stuff, if English isn't kind of seeping in to a lot of languages, but then other languages have seeped into um, English, you know? So yeah, it's interesting what, if there's going to be some kind of mixing mashup of language because of modern communication. Okay, uh, yes, uh, Deutscher has a somewhat, okay, what's gonna happen? We're gonna go off the circle and things are gonna be different approach. Uh, where in the story of language, the lecturer says English will become the universal language. And he, he doesn't go into it a lot, but he, he makes one sentence that says, this is what I believe, it will become the universal language. Uh, Jeffrey. Yeah, two comments. I, I think the, the internet, though, has facilitated resurrection of some smaller languages, not all of them, but I, I'm familiar with like Breton, which is spoken in Brittany, Northwestern France, Gaelic, in Ireland, Manx, in the Isle of Man, and Welsh, all, all of these languages have re been resurrected because of the internet. So you can have a, a smaller community of people, they can still interact with each other. But at the same time, I, I understand from, because I have friends who are linguists, that uh, some of, uh, you know, some of the African languages that, that are smaller are going away because they're not on the, the internet. And I see Klingon, yes. That's that's definitely and Dothraki for Game of Thrones and and High Valerian, which you can learn on Duolingo, by the way, if you want. Uh, but uh, the the other thing is, 
I'm not so sure. Uh, this was a point on Deutscher's book I wasn't entirely clear on about this question of erosion, because John McWhorter, who I've read all of his books, he makes the the very strong point that what looks like erosion is just creativity and that the languages are just morphing in ways that facilitate more creative expression. So it's not clear to me that that it's necessarily a bad thing. And you know, he'll make the comment that like a lot of the texting language is just as creative as as you know some of the things that have gone on before. So I mean that that's also you know an, an interesting question, uh, it, it, which which may be up to the interpretation of of individuals. I mean at the same time, McWhorter will sometimes he's got his issues like you know there are certain things where he's comfortable with people going off the rails on grammar, but other things he wants them to stay in the lane. So you know it's I think it's a very complicated iterative process. Yes, um, Deborah. So in Borneo, <laughs> um, there are many indigenous tribes and just the just the western, like almost just the west coast of Borneo, there, um, there are several Dayak tribes and they all have their own language. They're all um, Australo-Malay, I think languages and and um in fact my son-in-law um says that that uh he speaks Sulaco which is really close to Malay and in fact I I'm thinking I might want to learn Malay because you can't you know you can't go to to Rosetta Stone and say I want to learn Sulaco you know I can't I want to learn Iban you you can't learn these these languages but the thing about um, the thing about these languages, and you know, sure, they especially as as the world is becoming smaller and languages are disappearing. Colonialism is, you know, a big thing. But um, language is tied to culture, and there are things in Sulaco that you can't say in Malay. And if Sulaco disappears, then a part of Sulaco culture disappears. So, so it really um, the loss of language is is hugely significant um, as as far as the people that speak them. And it's so easy for it to happen. You know, kids go to school and they have to learn. In Malaysia, they have to they have to learn Arabic because they, they have to be able to read the Quran. You know, they're being taught Arabic in school, uh, but they're only getting Sulaco at home. And all it takes is one generation to lose a language. So that's it. Yes. Okay, that brings us to the ending note. Thank you, both Jeffrey and Deborah, for bringing us to the end of a discussion that could go on for another ten hours. <laughs> I would like to take just a minute or two and uh, read this uh, this thought. I know that Landon came up with this thought too in their discussion with John uh, Lundwall. Um, and it is about the loss of languages. We're losing languages at about the rate of one language every two weeks. And by, uh, I think it's the end of the century. Yeah, here it is. 
Just like the rainforests and the coral reefs, the languages of the world are vanishing. At an estimate death rate of one language every two weeks, it seems that before this century is out, between half and three quarters of the world's 6,000 languages will have disappeared. And among them, almost all the languages of the small preliterate societies. And I would like to read what Landon and I both think is the significance of uh, losing that. And so on to the next slide. This is from Robin Kimmerer in Braiding Sweetgrass. I remember paging, and, and uh, in case you haven't read the book, she is Native American, a botanist. I remember paging through the Ojibwe dictionary my sister sent, trying to decipher the tiles, but the spellings didn't always match, and the print was too small, and there was way too many variations on a single word, and I was feeling that this was just way too hard. The threads in my brain nodded, and the harder I tried, the tighter they became. Uh, pages blurred, and my eyes settled on one word, a verb, of course, to be a Saturday. I threw down the book. Since when is Saturday a verb? Everyone knows it's a noun. I grabbed the dictionary and flipped more pages, and all kinds of things seemed to be verbs. To be a hill, to be red, to be a, ver to be a long, sandy stretch of beach. And then my fingers rested on wiki wegama, to be a bay. Ridiculous. I ranted in my head, there's no reason to make it so complicated. No wonder no one ever speaks it. A cumbersome language, impossible to learn. And more than that, it's all wrong. A bay is most definitely a person, place, or thing, a noun, and not a verb. I was ready to give up. I'd learned a few words, done my duty to the language that had was taken from my grandfather. Oh, the ghosts of the missionaries in the boarding schools must have been rubbing their hands in glee at my frustration. She's going to surrender, they said. And then I swear I heard the zap of synapses firing. An electric current sizzled in my arm and through my finger and practically scorched the page where the one word lay. In that moment, I could smell the water of the bay, watch it rock against the shore, and hear it sift into the sand. A bay is a noun only if water is dead. When bay is uh, when bay is a verb, I, uh, when bay is a noun, it is defined by humans trapped between the shores, and it can and contained by the word. But the word wiki wega ma to be a bay releases the water from bondage and lets it live. To be a bay holds the wonder that, for this moment, the living water has decided to shelter itself between these shores, conversing with the cedar roots and a flock of baby mergansers, because it could do otherwise, become a stream or an ocean or a waterfall, and there are verbs for that too. To be a hill, to be a sandy beach, to be a Saturday, all are possible verbs in a world where everything is alive, water, land, and ev even a day, the language of mirror to seeing the animacy of the world, the life that pulses through all things, through pines and nut hatches and mushrooms. This is the language I hear in the woods. This is the language that lets us speak of what wails up all around us. And the vestiges of boarding schools, the soap-welding missionary race, hang their heads in defeat. So um, 
we're losing beautiful things and what we can keep of them is good and acknowledging that they exist, that there is more out there is part of the post-Mormon philosophy. So that is the end. Um, we covered a little bit. Uh, like I said, later today, I will post my um, slide notes in um, at our uh, Facebook page. Um, and if you feel like you missed some of the technical stuff of the books, well, you might find it there. That's it. Thank you. Oh, that was wonderful, Luann. Thank you so much. Wow. And, and you're not kidding. We really could have kept talking probably for several hours about this. And I'm so glad that we ended on Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, for those of you that are joining us more recently, that's a book that we did, um, I think, almost a year ago last fall. Beautiful book. I cannot um, stress how important and wonderful that book is if you want to pick that up and read it. And it definitely gives you the sense of that beautiful language um, that you can resurrect. And like Landon said, every time I look at a stream now or a river, I do think of it as a verb. It's a whole different mindset that lets you experience things in a different way. So uh, let's quickly talk again. Thank you, Luann. Everybody, please uh, in the chat, clap. That was absolutely amazing. Thank you for tackling that. What could have been very difficult, but you did it in a very accessible, wonderful way for us. So um, let us talk about what we're going to read for uh, September, which of course, um, September 11th is the anniversary of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. So what we're going to do is we invite you to choose any book. Uh, these are the ones I've read or I'm in the process of reading. Our book club read uh, Will Bagley's Blood of the Prophet two years ago and went down to the site. Vengeance is Mine is a new one, the one that we're reading over in the Mormon Stories Book Club. There are a whole bunch of other books there that you can see. Um, and, and even if you don't want to tackle a whole book, maybe just read up on it. Um, look at some websites, get some information. And we're just going to have a big discussion about this event that people say, well, why does this matter? Why is this even important? Why do we keep studying this? Why do we keep bringing it up? And we all have different reasons. I have a personal reason. As a lot of you know, I have a, my direct founding Mormon ancestor, completely revered by my family, uh, was involved as a shooter and a clubber in the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And I discovered it when I was working at BYU um, when I first started my job at the library there. And no one in my family you know, would hear any information about that. So um, that started kind of my, what I think will be a lifelong interest in trying to figure out exactly what happened and the dynamics, um, the societal elements, the cultural elements. Um, it's very relevant today. <laughs> a lot of things that happened then are still in play today in different ways. So if you have not looked into this topic, um, this is a good time. I'm challenging you. Do it. Pick up one of these books, whichever one you want. We're hoping that we'll have a variety so that when we all get together next month and it'll actually be on the 10th, it'll be the day before the anniversary of when the event happened, um, we can just have a discussion about this and and come away from it with a greater understanding and maybe lessons learned things that are relevant today so that's your assignment and again if you can't actually read a book or don't have time just read up on it a little bit and we'll all just participate in that conversation so that is next month that's what we're doing next month um, very quickly, we'll go through the media on the radar associated with the Good Book Club. We have the Good Media Club, where we kind of curate things in the media about Mormonism, documentaries, films, things like that. Um, it's on Facebook. It's a group that you can join, and we just kind of throw information in there if you want to um, be aware of things that are not books, but other media. 
um, the Good Book Club podcast, our episodes here, like what we did today, are available in podcast format. And you can just search that on any, your favorite podcast platform and plug it in and go running or, or whatever. But we're, we're definitely available on podcast. We're also available on YouTube. If you search the Good Book Club for post-Mormons, all of these episodes are put up um, probably about a day after we actually um, have the meeting. So you can revisit that or share that with people um, if you think they'd be interested if they didn't have a chance to attend. Um, we also have Mormonish podcasts that Landon and I uh, run, kind of sprung out of the Good Book Club. We have all kinds of interesting episodes. The episodes that we were referencing in this meeting about Dr. John Lundwell, those are episode number 57, part one, and episode number 61, part two. It is absolutely groundbreaking research is causing an incredible stir in the community we know that because we're being attacked on all sides by apologists <laughs> i can't even tell you the things they're saying about us ad hominem oh my gosh uh, but that means that we've definitely made an impact and it's it's absolutely groundbreaking research so episode 57 and 61 on mormonish podcast if you've not checked those out those are also available mormonish is a podcast too that you can find on podcast format so check those out and there'll be more to come from dr John Lundwell, because he's just blowing everything up out there. Um, if you're not a member of the book club, it just kind of jumped on today to see what we're all about. You, We would love it if you join us. We have such a fun community and we have such an interesting time together. Um, our primary, our, our, our main means of communication is our Facebook page. Um, you can look us up, the Good Book Club on Facebook. That's our logo right there with that row of books. You can join there and we kind of chat back and forth. We also put information on Instagram. And if you're not so much on social email, social media, Media, you can just email me at thegoodbookclub at mail.com and I'll send you links and information that way. But we would love for you guys to find us and, and continue attending because we appreciate all of you. So um, also, if you email me, it sometimes goes to spam my reply. So make sure you check that because I'll always email you back. And at this point, we always make the joke that we can't somehow separate ourselves from the three hour block. Like we tend to just go three hours. I don't know what it is about us as post-Mormons or nuanced Mormons, but we definitely have a mix and mingle section. And so we are going to end our recording right now and we'll just stay on and chat if you can, if you'd like.